Welcome to a new podcast series, The Growing Pandemic, How Innovation and Collaboration Can End Alzheimer's. Brought to you by the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, or CEOI, this podcast series explores opportunities to accelerate our fight against Alzheimer's disease shared during the 2020 Lausanne Workshop. This convening, held each year in Lausanne, Switzerland, is the world's leading stage for global dialogue on how to speed new innovations in prevention, treatment, and care to those impacted by Alzheimer's. CEOI is an organization of private sector leaders who have joined together to provide business leadership in the fight against Alzheimer's, a growing pandemic that threatens to devastate communities, national health systems, and the global economy if we fail to act. In Episode 4 of Season 2, we will explore how the lessons of vaccine development and distribution can be applied to Alzheimer's disease. The panel includes leading experts and researchers. Suzanne Andre is Head of Health and Healthcare Industries at the World Economic Forum, focusing on public-private partnerships to improve equitable, affordable, and high-quality access to care. The World Economic Forum has also partnered with the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease to launch the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, a global partnership that is mobilizing the world against Alzheimer's disease. Tim Evans is Director and Associate Dean of the McGill University School of Population and Global Health and former Senior Director of Health, Nutrition, and Population in Global Practice at the World Bank. Peggy Hamburg is a board member of Gavi and former commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Jayasri Iyer is executive director of the Access to Medicine Foundation, which works to drive access for the millions of people globally who cannot benefit fully from modern medicine. Andrea Pfeiffer is co-founder, chief executive officer, and director of AC Immune, a biopharmaceutical company focused on precision medicine to diagnose, treat, and prevent neurodegenerative diseases. George Vredenberg is convener of the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, co-chair of the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, and the moderator of this panel discussion. Together, they share their perspectives on the research, financing, regulatory, and healthcare system actions needed to develop and distribute new Alzheimer's innovations globally. Please note that the opinions expressed by participants are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the organizations they represent. This particular panel is focused on vaccine development, and it is really a surrogate for how it is, what are the steps that we need at a variety of points in the value creation mechanism that are required in order to get a new novel treatment like a vaccine to market. So we're going to use the vaccine as a somewhat of a surrogate here for treatments, but nevertheless, there is vaccines in development and reality. So that what we are confronting here is a language that we've learned to use in COVID, which is vaccine development. 
What does it take to develop the vaccine, to manufacture a vaccine, to get it clinically tried through global trials, to get it addressed by regulators around the world, uh, to get it paid for, and then to get it to people around the world? We're going to start with Andrea Pfeiffer, who has a vaccine in development. And I'd like to turn to Andrea and ask her, where does the science currently stand with regard to a vaccine for Alzheimer's? And can we expect a vaccine or potential vaccine in the next few years for Alzheimer's? So from COVID-19, we actually learned that the global pandemic needs a global approach and vaccines are pretty effective and cost-effective as well. Now, vaccines in Alzheimer's are slightly different. We are not talking about an infectious disease in the, in the traditional sense. In, in Alzheimer's, what we see is proteins, normal proteins that carry out functions in the body, become misholded and can aggregate to a disease-causing species. And it has been already shown that uh, investigational vaccines can be made against these pathological proteins, and I will come to, to, back to that, and actually induce a strong, robust, safe immune response. And importantly, it's long-lasting, maybe lasting for one year. In fact, would, for that reason, have a very profound impact obviously uh, still early in development. So to prove actually, and this is what George asked me, that this is not a scientific concept on paper, but actually it's a totally new field of uh, AD research. Looking at the regulatory environment, and I'm sure Peggy has uh, here a lot to say, I think based on what we learned from Aducanumab, my prediction would be that such a vaccine would be available during the next five to seven years. Now, what is needed in order to apply a broadly a vaccine approach? I think most importantly, we need the timely identification of at-risk population to administer a vaccine and prevent the cascade of pathological events leading to neurodegeneration. And this is really a key aspect in what we are discussing today. So we need to validate blood tests in a clinical practice. We need to apply routinely these tests to identify people with early Alzheimer's or preclinical Alzheimer's, we need to try to work with the governments to actually finance such early testing. And we need a global framework for clinical global drug development, working with the governments and industry, NGOs together. And last not least, and here I'm almost addressing uh, Peggy, we need a global regulatory standard, which helps us to prepare these clinical trials to do the right biomarker-based clinical development Peggy, on the assumption that we have a vaccine in clinical development that could be available in that time frame, how might we think about what the regulatory systems of the world might do? I think it is critically important to recognize that the regulatory framework is more than just an operational system. It is really a part of the science of medical product development. The regulators play a key role from the very beginning in helping to understand both the underlying mechanisms of disease and the strategies to address it. This is an area where the more regulators can work together around the world, the better off we will be because there are critical issues of science to be defined. And then there's critical processes to help 
with the scale-up manufacturing and ultimately distribution and ongoing monitoring, it is going to be essential that we define uh, the appropriate diagnostics, the opportunities to use blood for diagnostics, cerebrospinal fluid, and of course, imaging. And that will all be important as we design clinical trials, both for entry into clinical trials and ongoing monitoring. We need to have biomarkers to enable us to determine the impact of vaccine on patients as the vaccine is used and studied because we do not want to have vaccine trials that have to go on for the whole span of disease. So we're going to have to have different kinds of studies that are designed knowing that this is not one really homogeneous disease, but it has different patterns in terms of manifestations and how it unfolds over time. So going back to the sort of global regulatory questions, I think that this is an area, just as we saw with COVID, to a very positive effect, where the more the regulators work together from the beginning to really sort of say, what are the critical questions? What are the concerns? How are we going to demonstrate efficacy? How are we going to assess safety? How are we going to monitor over time? How are we going to share information How are we going to structure trials? This is a global pandemic. This is a huge and growing problem for countries around the world. We need to make sure that any successful products that are developed will be able to be made at scale and in an affordable, reliable way that can make it available to all who need it, wherever they are in countries rich and poor, in countries with sophisticated and less mature healthcare systems. I'm going to turn now to Tim. As you heard, financing is a critical element in all this, whether it be manufacturing and whether it would be access globally. I'm curious as to what we did in COVID and whether there's any transferable knowledge there. Let me just reflect not purely on the on the most recent experience of the COVID-19, but perhaps those two decades of, of experience where essentially based on the recognition that the world's populations are not receiving the benefits or the opportunity of R&D as they could. Many individuals have been trying to engineer different opportunities to accelerate R&D and make it more accessible to everyone who would benefit from either new diagnostics or new vaccines or new therapeutics. And these have come under two sort of very generic ways of understanding this space conceptually. The first is a push mechanism, and the second is a pull, so push and pull. And so there have been a number of efforts to push R&D faster, to direct it towards addressing issues that perhaps the markets might not pick up as quickly. And so these have taken the form of product development partnerships around AIDS vaccines, the International Alliance for Vaccine AIDS Vaccine Initiative, the TB Alliance or uh, TB Drugs or Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. Those are all push mechanisms. The other is the pull side, and this is really the carrot. This is the incentive for R&D to think about markets on a global basis. So about 15 years ago, an advanced market commitment was made to increase production of 
pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Similarly, in the early days of Gavi, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, something called IFM, International Financing Facility for Immunization, was set up, and it sold vaccine bonds. In the context of COVID, though, what we've seen is the transformative potential of both the push and the pull. It's a story that doesn't get told sufficiently, is the transformation is not only in the acceleration of R&D, it's the recognition now that the veritable global market is 7.5 billion citizens of the world, and not just 1.5 billion people who happen to live in rich OECD countries. And that five-fold differential in the size of the market is a massive incentive to all sorts of companies. I declare my bias as a former member of the World Bank, but I think as, a, as an institution, it has a very important role. It has played an important role in facilitating things like the advanced market commitment, the IFFIM, IFM that I just mentioned for vaccine bonds, and very importantly, in the context of COVID, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, where they basically really fueled the pipeline for some of the mRNA vaccines. And then once you've made that case, the really tough delivery side of this, which is how do you get from airports to arms? How do you make sure that you're diagnosing all that are the intended beneficiaries, that you're getting vaccines to those, those who need them? I want to turn next to Suzanne because uh, the World Economic Forum is so well known at creating sort of a whole of field or public-private partnerships. And I'm curious as to whether you think those are useful in this context, important, essential. I mean, and how do we learn from the past in terms of who has to be at the table talking about what in order to get all of this done? Clearly, public-private partnership have had a key role in COVID-19. We've seen a massive increase in collaboration with the private sector and governments, with academia, driving innovation, with the right financing institutions and uh, civil society as well on the ground to help to really then get the, the, the vaccine to the people who need it and, and support this. And if you just look maybe a little bit further in the past, it usually was, in many cases, a crisis, an emergency that caused these type of partnerships to emerge. CEPI, as an example, was created after the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa around 2015. And similarly with Gavi, which was created at one of the annual meetings of the World Economic Forum 20 years ago, there was an opportunity to come together and actually pool purchasing power and provide a much more stable and consistent outlook on the needs of demand for vaccines, and thereby attract in a sustainable way the manufacturers to be able to deliver vaccines at a much lower cost in much larger volumes. And we've seen um, similar approaches with public-private partnerships now in, in COVID, where, as we already heard, we've, been, we've seen massive acceleration of the vaccine development and the distribution with the right partners coming together. Now, if you look at, at, at Alzheimer and what can we learn for a potential Alzheimer vaccine on that, I think the same principle applies. This is not a challenge that one player or constituent can solve alone. We really need to bring everybody, all the key stakeholders together. 
the private sector, the public sector, the governments, the regulators, the patients, the civil society, academia, to be able to solve that challenge. Suzanne, one follow-up question. Uh, the global CEOI, which I convene, and the World Economic Forum have created this Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. It had a year in scientific and business planning. It had We've had almost a year under our belt in terms of initial operational capacity. I'm curious as to what you hope this Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative could do. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a very good example of key stakeholders coming together and, and jointly having a shared vision of aiming to solve a challenge that we haven't been able to solve in the past couple of decades. I'm fully supportive of what the Davos Alzheimer Collaborative is aiming to in pulling the knowledge and the power of the innovation to be able to accelerate the identification of biomarkers, to be able to scale global clinical trials and share that information in a way that it can inform each other so that we don't have isolated little information packages, but we're actually really spreading that information and thereby shorten the timelines and the cost for clinical trials and be able to accelerate massively the advances in, in Alzheimer's. And then, of course, very importantly, also to prepare the health systems once we have a treatment? Do we have the diagnostic testing? Do we have the right infrastructure in place to be able to deliver on that promise? Jay, um, you are head of a foundation that uh, actually deals with what Tim emphasized was sort of the last mile, the in-country access. Uh, So what ought we to be thinking about over the next couple of years or even sooner, starting now, to actually develop the capacity for in-country delivery of treatments and specifically on a vaccine? So one major issue I think that is that is important to take into account now, and this is kind of a wider ask for, for multiple stakeholders, is to look at how management of, of dementia and Alzheimer's is, is actually taking place in, in around the world. I mean, We need to make sure that Alzheimer's is diagnosed properly. People, doctors, um, patients, communities are aware of this disease and are guided today in managing the disease in that sense. I mean, what we see now is that, you know, mental neurological health conditions, issues on healthy aging are often lost in line in most health systems around the world because they're facing immediate threats of infectious diseases and not even looking at COVID right now. So when you ask me what are the steps that need to be brought forward, I think step one is in making sure that the product that is being designed is meant to help the world. So remembering that 80% of the world's population live in lower middle income countries and the burden of Alzheimer's disease is still very important in countries in North Africa, Middle East, China, large parts of Southeast Asia. I think next comes uh, when a product's actually being developed. I think my colleagues here have spoken a bit about the capacity for clinical trials and making sure that these um, the new vaccines or any product is actually being tested and used in real-life situations and contexts in countries is an important aspect so that you can co-create the capacity at the country level as the, the studies are actually being done in some of the countries that are uh, suffering the heaviest burden of disease. We need to look at platforms such as Gavi and UNICEF, perhaps not the organizations themselves, but the way that they're working and how these organizations can help in broadening access. You know, do you need to build a channel for procurement and distribution, especially for these products? Um, how do you deal with an appropriate price or a set of prices so that you can tackle um, ability to pay? I think lastly, supply chains. Health systems in countries are designed very vertically, right, to tackle some of the big risks in in infectious diseases, in maternal and neonatal mortality, and moving that towards a a more 
comprehensive list of areas that a, that a health system needs to invest in is a major issue. So it tends to deter innovators from thinking that their product will actually get anywhere. But that's why we need to start at a collaborative manner, as, as Suzanne mentioned, and as Peggy laid out where even regulators and governments are working together to sort of build a system for access and capacity. So I think the momentum is there today because there's a lot, lot more awareness. I think there was also, we, we need to make sure that not only do innovators think about this, but also the investors. So we work with over 150 investment firms now with over 25 trillion US dollars in assets under management. And they're extremely interested in the space. They're extremely interested in the space, but they're interested in it from the point of view of what kind of revenues can be generated from different populations. And we're trying to turn that conversation to say, look, why don't you engage with companies who are developing the drugs and the next generation products, such as vaccines, and talk to them and, and, and discuss with them about your vision for, for that broader access component of it. But there's a lot to be done. I mean, it's a fundamentally different product than what you typically see. And I think there's a lot of fundamentally different things you need to do at the access in order to get the airport to arms part of it done. I think one part of this, George, is to recognize first that although official government budgets for health in many low and middle income countries are quite constrained, private sector expenditure in healthcare is growing rapidly, very rapidly. We call it out of pocket payments for healthcare. So people are paying for care in countries by default. They need care and they're looking for opportunities. And I think part of the solution here is really to promote more comprehensive universal access and better government financing of healthcare sectors everywhere. And this comes under an agenda called universal health coverage. But I think these sorts of reforms on financing so that everybody in the population has access to care are ones that have a big dividend for companies that are looking at global markets because it takes it away purely from people who can pay or who pay in desperation, often when it's too late, to a more rationalized system where you've got larger flows of money and you can generate procurement or you can direct procurement to priorities that are really population-based. Well, I'm curious, Peggy, I'm going to ask you a question. You mentioned the importance of getting regulators together. Is there standing mechanisms to do that or would there be uh, ad hoc mechanisms relating to Alzheimer's? Well, I think we need to build an institutionalized mechanism so that these kinds of approaches become routine and especially are available in a crisis. But there are some existing approaches. There's an organization that works together on inspections of facilities, sharing information. There's another that helps to create certain standards for drug development and approval. And there's an organization that I'm happy to say I helped to create when I was FDA commissioner called ICMRA, the International Coalition of Medicine Regulatory Authorities. And that was created because we realized that whether you were a rich regulator or a poor regulator, there was too much work to be done and there was too much interdependence of systems and there were too many hard questions that needed to bring the best and the brightest minds together wherever they were that we couldn't afford 
not to work together. And so this entity was created at the highest levels of regulatory authorities around the world to really try to create a global governance framework for regulatory alignment and harmonization. And I think we need to make sure that we don't think of the regulatory component as just a bureaucratic afterthought or a unnecessary hurdle but really a partner in the most efficient regulatory review, but also development of new products. Global efforts on COVID-19 vaccines, HIV and or AIDS, TB, and other major campaigns illustrate the importance of multi-stakeholder collaboration to address urgent health challenges around the world. Alzheimer's represents precisely such a threat. Greater resources, stronger collaborations, and new innovative models are needed to ensure that future Alzheimer's innovations reach people everywhere. Our goal? Vaccinate the world against Alzheimer's disease, the growing pandemic. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Lausanne Workshop and the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, please visit usagainstalzheimers.org.